You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Prehistories Podcast with me, Kim Bidolf. In this podcast, if you haven't listened before, I usually like to talk about fiction set in prehistory, and that's mostly been books, although we have uh, moved into graphic novels a little bit, and uh, we're also going to be thinking about films set in prehistory in future episodes. But today, um, this episode is actually set in a reconstructed Iron Age house in a museum called the Chiltern Open Air Museum uh, that I often work at um, with my colleagues from the museum and we are sitting in the museum in the Iron Age Roundhouse at night sitting around the fire and telling each other funny stories which for some reason seem to involve quite a lot about food dye. And one day I packed with a bottle of blue food colour and I served them bright blue chicken soup. <laughs> it was with rice and mushrooms and all sorts of, and it was almost fluorescent. It was really quite startling. And they shut up after. <laughs> I use blue food colour at work once to try and stop people nicking my milk. <laughs> all that happened was somebody threw it out and said, oh, I thought it had gone off. So the Chiltern Open Air Museum is um, a museum just near London and it's usually, um, its main purpose is to rescue historic buildings from around the Chilterns. But it has one building that wasn't rescued but has been reconstructed and this is the Iron Age House. It's based on an excavated Iron Age house from Dunstable Downs and at night, with this, the first time that I'd slept in it, it is very atmospheric with just the light from the fire. Although we were dressed in modern clothes and had brought camp beds to sleep on so that we could be nice and comfortable, there was something timeless about sitting around this fire eating pottage which had been made by one of our number, Fox Turner, who um, had made it many times before on an open fire in these lovely pots um, and we, there was just enough to share around. And we, as we were talking and sharing these stories and making each other laugh, we all just sat close to the fire, staring into it. It the dancing flames just kept us all entranced. It was quite something to... you Inside the house, which is a roundhouse, which is very peculiar to Britain, these, these roundhouses, you feel very protected in there and cut off from the outside world, although you'd only have to walk through the door and there you are in the luminous moonlight outside. So it was a good setting, I think, to talk about stories in prehistory. Mm. There's some left if people want more. Can I tell you a story? Mm. Mm. So the people that I was uh, with in the Iron Age house that night uh, were many of my colleagues who also work in the Iron Age house to teach children about Iron Age life or talk to families when they come and help them experience what life would have been like. So there was... Um, my friend Ginny Simpson, Claire Walsh, Sean Hamilton Fraser, Anna Poole, Kathy and Andrew Simpson, Steve Norris, Fox Turner, and Isabel Bear the dog. <laughs> we all work at Coam, um, most of us, but not exclusively there at the Chiltern Open Air Museum. We're a mix of teachers and archaeologists and live interpreters and reenactors, and we all bring something a little different to help bring this house to life for people. And we all have slight, very different backgrounds and interests um, and we learn from each other. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot in the Iron Age house is 
when how do we show that people told stories what stories can we tell to children when they come into the iron age house so that they can experience some of what we experienced we like to shut the doors on the children at some point and make it dark but it's nothing compared to how dark it was in the iron age house that night <coughs> I'm just picking up the snoring <laughs> And so the book that I wanted to talk to people about that night, actually two books really. Um, the first was the Arthur the, and the King of the Britons by Miles Russell, which is a very recent book of uh, it's basically popular history. Um, th- looking at the um, texts of earlier authors, particularly from the 12th century, well, and and before, and thinking about what sources they had access to to write some of the stories, particularly focusing on Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote A History of the Kings of Britain in about 1130, that kind of time, AD. And because it was written over a thousand years after the Romans had invaded and the the Britons themselves had obviously changed massively um, when the Romans came. And then the uh, Anglo-Saxons had come and brought their own stories and history with them. Um, it was thought, well, you know, Geoffrey of Monmouth, even in the 12th century, most people thought that it was a load of rubbish, um, that he was... He said that he had access to sources that had previously not been seen, but he didn't say anything else. And he said that these were the stories of the ancient, the real stories of the ancient kings of Britain. Um, But nobody believed him, sadly. Um, And when I was studying archaeology, uh, this was also the, the line that we took, that he was just making things up. But... The book by Miles Russell has been has has changed my view somewhat, although I think there's this his theory is not um, entirely proved, but he looks he's done a textual an- analysis of Geoffrey of Monmouth, and it looks like at certain points he changes his narrative into it and it and it, it really changes style into a kind of epic poem of the battles and the betrayals and um stories of these kings of britain and even though some of the names have been mangled over the years possibly because geoffrey of monmouth was reading some old sources that had written things down differently and he wasn't used to those kind of iron age names that you can by the details of the story match it up often with classical sources like Julius Caesar to see who Geoffrey of Monmouth is actually talking about and we get the Britain's point of view for instance of the invasion of Britain by Julius Caesar so this is what I want to put to the team and see what they think so hello everybody, welcome to Priya Stories and um, this one is a little bit of a strange one because it, I am uh, recording it inside a replica Iron Age roundhouse that I often work in and I'm recording it with um, the team that I work with. Um, so um, everyone introduce themselves please. Ginny? Uh, yes, hello, I'm Ginny. Hello, I'm, I'm Claire Wolves. Hi, I'm Sean Hamilton Fraser. Hi, I'm Anna Paul. I'm Cathy Simpson. I'm Steve Norris. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and Fox is eating. Hi, I'm Fox. <laughs> so I think that everyone over that side of the fire um, is going to have to speak up so that my little tiny microphone can pick everyone up. Um, so we're in the Iron Age house, and I, um, it's uh, we're, we're doing a sleepover tonight in the Iron Age house. Uh, the fire is roaring, the potatoes are cooking, which are not particularly um, authentic, but never mind, it's going to be yummy. And we've all got beer, which is very authentic. Cider. <laughs> we or have cider. just eaten an amazing, and excellent pottage with, yes. with pork and herbs and onions and pulses. And that's, yeah. that's pretty Iron Age. Mm. It is, it's pretty good. For out out of the one. Iron Age pots, too. Yeah. So... Um, we're going to have a good time tonight, but very briefly, uh, I'm going to record a little podcast with you guys. 
Thank you very much for letting me impose on this evening. <laughs> and we missed somebody out. We're also joined by Bear. Isabel. Isabel. <laughs> what you can't see or hear, in fact, is us trying to make a very large Iron Age dog announce her presence. <laughs> Good girl. Very well behaved, Iron Age oh, dog. Beautiful. An Iron Age dog who sat and smelt the pottage. Mm. And didn't. And didn't, didn't get any. Didn't get any. Isabel Bear. <laughs> so we all kind of work in, in this building, don't we? Is, is yeah. this what? What's your best experience? Can I, anyone uh, want to want to? Tell us your favourite experience in this house. I think mine would be the first time I slept in here with several of the junior members of staff here at Tilton Open Air Museum. And it was the first time we'd slept over in the Iron Age house. We'd always said it would be an amazing venue for a sleepover. And as the fire died down, we all shuffled off to our beds and got under our blankets. Just listening to everybody else gently fall asleep around me and, and watching the firelight just die down was the most wonderful feeling and all you could hear around you was the sound of the outside world the owls and the, the the animals out in the woods and the crackle of the fire and the gentle snoring of several junior members of staff who perhaps had overindulged just a little <laughs> on, <laughs> on cheap beer but it was still a magical evening well this is my first time sleeping over in the iron age house so i'm very excited about staying here tonight um anybody else got any any favourite story? For me, it's the other end of the day when we come in to set up workshops and we're actually lighting the fire and waking the building up. I love walking down through the woods and coming in and lighting the fire and just seeing it come alive in the mornings. And you can see the steam rising off the off the thatch, can't you, outside? Yep. Wonderful. <clears throat> and that's incredible, actually, because people always say, where's the chimney? Why isn't there a hole for a chimney? We have to explain that actually the last thing you want to do is introduce a large an updraft, which brings your fire up into the thatch, and that's why there is no central hole in the roof here. There is no chimney. And we've always said to people, oh, the smoke just trickles out through the thatch. But actually standing outside this evening and watching that happen was really, really amazing. Yeah, it was coming. It was really billowing out. I think for me, um, it's when I'm teaching the kids and I've got them sitting around the fire and then I tell them that I'm going to shut the door. <clears throat> so I shut the door and there's always this sort of gasp because the, the whole house comes alive, doesn't it? It's completely mm. different with the door shut and it gives the children such a different experience, like nothing they've experienced <coughs> before. Yeah. It's something completely immersive. Yes. It isn't just reading a book or looking at a picture. There's something about walking into history like this where you have not just the sight but the smell and the sound of the past. That's very difficult to create to, to recreate. I think it's it's wonderful to have the opportunity to do that here. And I think the smell ca- um you get that carried around with you afterwards as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to Tesco after working here, then everyone gives you funny looks. <laughs> For the and uh, I always think, Oh my god, I'm so smelly. I don't mind it whilst I'm here, but when I get home, I have to, it have to um, have a shower straight away. Otherwise, I feel sick with the smell of the wood smoke. But it's beautiful whilst I'm here. Yeah, but it's the first time that I'll have slept here overnight, and I, I think that the two impressions for me is, is at the moment, is really how very warm the fire is and how focal the fire is, oh. and that you know everything. It seems. It feels a very um, protective, very safe, and you just glance out through the doorway and say <coughs> earlier that I hadn't realised it had actually gone completely dark. And I certainly don't get that where I live—that complete darkness at any point. And it—it just—it's—it's it's the opposites, isn't it? So I feel that quite powerfully. I think you're right. There's a very real sense of warmth and comfort and safety and togetherness mm. in here. And outside, the world is colder and darker, and sounds are funny and. You yeah, don't know quite what might be out there. Whereas in here, it does feel like a very safe space. Yeah, mm. and we can just see each other's faces through the light of the fire. Mm. And you can, it, we always tell kids. Well, I do anyway. I don't know about you guys, but I tell them that the fire is like the like the TV. 
So you, you look at it and watch it and you can't help but watch it and keep on watching it all evening sometimes. So you can let the TV do that to you. And it's basically because it's, it's like that fire. As a reenactor, we've always called it medieval television. Yeah. It's quite compelling once you start watching it. And that last portion of potage is coming to me, I'm afraid. Pass the ball then, Ginny. Thank you. So what's missing though is some stories. And um, I've all I've been I've had problems thinking about the stories that I tell children. What do I tell them? And I know that some of us have told the story of Boudicca, but that doesn't seem quite right. Because we're here at the Chiltern Open Air Museum, which is near Amersham in the Chilterns. It's not in East Anglia. <laughs> so why are we telling the story of Boudicca here? Um, but the problem is, is that we do we ha- we don't really have any stories from this area. I know some of you tell stories, Kathy. You you sometimes tell stories um, it, to children, don't you? Yes, I am aware of the the tradition of the large scary dog that appears out of the darkness, quite often foretelling a death and so on in the, um, the, the folk story tradition. And uh, particularly thinking about uh, meeting Isabel, who is not a small dog by any means, <laughs> heavier than I am, um, which is nice to think about, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I can quite see how coming across a large animal unexpectedly mm. would lead to this sort of superstition. Um, I'm aware, well, I mean, I was going to say there's no documentary evidence. There's very little documentary evidence of the times we're talking about. There's no evidence of this sort of story being told. But I can see how the tradition would grow up sitting round safely inside. You don't quite know what's going on out there. And uh, Fox was saying earlier that there are, uh, there's bone evidence of large dogs from the Iron Age. So uh, I now feel slightly more confident that the stories I'm telling probably were part of, not of a, an epic, <coughs> heroic tradition of storytelling, but a, a folk yeah. and stay indoors overnight because you never know what you're going to meet yeah. type storytelling. And in that later Iron Age, we were well known. It's kind of proto-historical, it, it's often called, isn't it? It's kind of, we're written about rather than writing ourselves. And so Caesar and a few of the other classical authors write about us, and write, write about Britain, I should say, because it's, it's very easy to assume that they're our ancestors, but, you know, um, I know I've got um, heritage from all over the world. So. Um, and hunting dogs is one of those one of those things that Britain was really famous for. It's great hunting dogs. That's you, Isabel. Cheers. She's, she'd be a very average sort of a hunting dog, <laughs> if we're honest. It's just training, isn't it? <laughs> but there was something tremendously valuable about a, a big, strong, solid, heavy dog like this. Absolutely. They'd be prized mm. for a very long time, for as long as we had recordable evidence for their abilities to guard the family to guard the household, to guard stock and produce and armies and all the things that are important. Mm. So, anyone else tell any other stories in here? Is there anything that comes springs to mind? There's the talk story. Yeah, yeah. About the, the I one love I use is the the wedding one. Because mm-hmm. we have a talk in here, and I bring it out for the kids, and I, I usually select one of the children, put the talk around their neck, and then put a cloak on them. And describe how it's my wife's talk, and she got it when she was married. Oh, that sort of talk. That sort of talk. <laughs> <Right. laughs> sort of Not the other sort. T O R C. Yeah. That's right. And then, um, then actually looking at it, describe how the the actual ends represent the the mother and the child, and that sort of idea, and then how the ceremony and how we all you know all gathered together as a family and just putting that together in their minds yeah it's beautiful do you you create that story or did you get that from someone um that partly came from um tom Uh, we all remember tom we all remember yeah ah the sainted tom oh the old tom (laughs) um he he started on that story um and it was snetish snetish yeah Yeah. and it's all branched out from there and i saw built up on that Saying it was my wife instead, it was a found a find which might have been 
belonging to... It's much more personal, isn't it? Yeah. You, you weave it into your own story of your if, character. If you can yeah. relate it to yourself and your family, then it's more believable. Mm. So you, the, the kids start believing that you are an Iron Age person who lives in this house, who has a family, who are out there looking mm. after sheep or whatever. But, yeah. It seems like Norfolk is, is really the place to be in the Iron Age. They seem to have all the gold and all the <laughs> Snettisham. I, I, I started my career in archaeology right next door to Snettisham in a, in a little t- uh, village called Sedgeford. Um, and I was starting with Anglo-Saxon stuff. It was very boring. And they were Christian as well. Very <laughs> They're not buried with anything. You oh, know? Yes, They're just unhelpful. Yeah, very unhelpful. There's no grave goods or anything. Anybody listening, make sure you're buried with interesting things for heaven's sake, future archaeologists. <laughs> thank you. Well, they will. They will, absolutely. That's a good reason for being cremated, actually. <laughs> Unless you're a workshop leader and you're buried with all your stuff, then archaeologists will not thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be confused. Get buried with a Roman coin and like a yeah, and, uh, Saxon pendant. Neil and thick axe head. Yeah. Yeah. And a modern yeah. wristwatch. <laughs> and radio. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and of course, radiocarbon dating doesn't really work on us anymore, does it? No. Yeah. Fillings in our teeth. <laughs> steel pins in our legs or whatever. There's all sorts of things that would really muck up future archaeologists. Yeah. Mm. Stabilised tape analysis doesn't work either. No. Because we get our, all our food and stuff from, our, from all, all over the, the place. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after a few minutes. Hey podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> there are a few archaeologists amongst us, I think. And, um... You can't move without tripping over one. That's <laughs> pretty much the problem. <laughs> well, because I've been searching for stories to tell in here. And, you know, you go to the Iron Age, Iron Age uh, what could be Iron Age literature... Um, Irish sagas and Welsh myths and legends, and you think, well, yes, that's great, but but are they? Would they have been told at this time and over here in the southeast where we are? Um, and then I saw this book. So obviously, usually in the podcast, I talk about books. Now this is not a um, a storybook. It is um, an well, it's not really an academic book. It's popular history, really, and it's called Arthur and the Kings of Britain by Miles Russell, but it's actually not about King Arthur at all. I don't think he's ha- he's hardly mentioned. But it's about um, a book called uh, The History of the Kings of Britain that was written in 1131 AD uh, by a man called, who called himself... Sorry. Do you mind? Not in the slightest, <laughs> do you? I'll wait until you both Sorry, those <laughs> And he called himself Geoffrey of Monmouth. He may have been from Monmouth, but he actually was working in Oxford. Anyway, that's not really the point. But Miles Russell is basically... Uh, well, Geoffrey of Monmouth's work has been dismissed by everyone from the 12th century onwards. Everybody says that he's just made it all up. And he claims that he got all of his stories from ancient texts that no one had ever seen before. Um, and then all oh, those texts have been lost and we haven't found them and all that stuff. Convenient. Very convenient, <laughs> which is why he's been dismissed. And I remember when I did my degree, we mentioned him, and then he said, "But it's not based on anything; it doesn't have any fact." Um, but Miles Russell has kind of done a bit of a textual analysis of Geoffrey Monmouth, and has co- and, and basically has shown that. Um, well, I think it's pretty convincing that he's shown that Geoffrey Monmouth has lifted sections of epic poetry and possibly written uh, or at least told in the Iron Age, particularly the late Iron Age, because it ties in quite nicely with Caesar. So, of course, Julius Caesar invades twice, doesn't do very well, goes away, takes over Rome, gets killed. Um, So in this, have we got an opposing viewpoint? And in this, in Geoffrey of Monmouth, 
it has the it has two opposing viewpoints. But he didn't realise that they were two different stories. This is what Miles Russell was saying. He kind of tries to weave those the two traditions together. And one tradition has a man called Androgius um, as the hero, and another one has a man called Cassibelornus as the hero. We know that name. Yes. Mm. Um, and uh, and they're both kind of they add in details that Caesar doesn't tell you because of course Caesar was seeing it from his own point of view, um, and that is really quite interesting. So. The only thing that happens that Geoffrey of Monmouth does is that he doesn't understand the names of the places. So he thinks Trinovantum, and this is a very old idea, that Trinovantum um, is a place rather than a group of people. And we know that the tribe is called the Trinovantes, and they were based mainly in Essex. Um, but Geoffrey of Monmouth read it as Troy Nova, New Troy, and said it was London. And this comes from a very, very old... Um, story that Britain was actually founded by one of the Trojan princes that had escaped after the Trojan War and come to Britain and he was called Brutus and that's why it's called Britain. Um, so he mistakes Trinovantes for Trinovantum and puts it in a different place. Um, he also uh, mistakes uh, the Catavalloni area for Cornwall and calls it Cornubia and thinks it's about Cornwall. So he makes the story about um, the whole of southern Britain, but it looks like he's talking about people. Um, like Tenuantius is probably Tasciovanus, who we've got on coins from Verulamium, um, and Camelodunum, which is now St Albans and Colchester. Um, and Androgius is uh, probably Mandubracius, is what he's suggesting here. Um, and Cassibelornus, that's quite a ni nice one because that fits in with what Caesar calls him, Cassibelornus. And V and B are basically interchangeable at this point. Um, so it's, I think we can actually use this story um, when, we, when we talk about it and talk about the Caesar's um, uh, failed invasions from our point of view, from the point of view of Cassibelornus, because we are deep in Catavalloni territory. So Cassavalonus would be our hero, and I think we can talk about this. Um, so uh, the Geoffrey's uh, cha writing changes from lists of kings to epic poem when he talks about some of these battles. And can I read you a little bit of it? So and wave your arms around a bit because you're getting wonderful shadows up there. Uh -huh. Oh, oh yeah! <laughs> oh look at that! That's amazing. <laughs> So, as the two sides made contact, the Emperor's company came very near to being scattered by the close ranks of the invading Britons. They all fought together in a confused melee, and Nennius had the extraordinary luck of meeting Julius in person. As he rushed at Caesar, Nennius rejoiced in his heart at the fact that he would be able to deal at least one blow at so great a man. Caesar saw Nennius charging at him. He warded his opponent off with his shield and struck him on his helmet with his naked sword. Caesar lifted his sword a second time with the intention of following up his first blow and dealing a fatal wound. Nennius saw what he was at and held out his own shield. Caesar's sword glanced off Nennius's helmet and cut into his shield so deeply that when they had to abandon their hand-to-hand fight because of the troops who crowded in on them, the emperor could not wrench his sword out. Having acquired Caesar's sword in this way, Nennius threw away his own, dragged the other weapon out and hurried off to attack the enemy with it. <laughs> That's really interesting because that's written from the point of view of some of these absolutely seen battles. Yeah. And I don't think Geoffrey Monmouth would be that guy. No. Because he, he was a monk. But there are several reenactors amongst us this evening, and I think that's quite a nice little eyewitness description of a. Yeah, nice little description mm. of hand to hand combat. Yeah. And then taking his sword. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you take yeah, Caesar's sword? I mean, bloody hell. <coughs> That would be awesome. Yeah. And when when uh, Gordon does his bit about his Roman sword and shield that he's taken from the enemy, it, it's it's, possible, it can be based it, in this. Yeah. And we're talking about shields made of wood and, and leather, perhaps. Absolutely, it's entirely possible that you've captured, that you've caught your enemy's sword in that. Mm. And you've jerked your shield out of and captured the sword. That's fascinating. So I think it, we can go back to Geoffrey of Monmouth and lift some of these pieces out. Um, 
there's this next bit. The Britons pressed forward with their ranks undivided. As they charged boldly on, God favoured them and victory was theirs. Caesar withdrew to a line between his camp and the ships, for his Ro Romans were being cut to pieces. And it's, it's lovely, because it's, it's from, our, from the Britons' point of view, um, and not that propaganda that Caesar always talks about. <laughs> not that you're biased in any way. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Romans are boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, you heard it here first, people. <laughs> the women's done for us. But what's lovely as well is that it talks about this, that, that actually the main enemy was the Trinovantes. And there's loads of stuff about how sometimes the Catavalloni uh, end up being able to control um, the Trinovantes territory and sometimes it's the other way around. And they mention Cantia as well, which is probably Kent, um, and how they are dukes that pay homage to Cassivalaunus or Tasciavanus or Cunobelin, who comes in later. Um, and I think maybe we can go back to Geoffrey and mine it for stories. <laughs> it's fascinating to look at a quite an established and very well-known work with yeah. completely fresh eyes to it is amazing, actually, yeah. And then, if, if that's got a basis in truth, all of that stuff where he talks about um, King Bladdard, do you know this, the story of King Bladdard? No. Um, he's the mythical founder of Bath. But is he so mythical? Um, he was, when he was a prince, he was sent to Greece to learn philosophy. Um, but when he came back, he had um, leprosy. <laughs> so he was thrown out of the court and he went to um, uh, to live in the woods and be a swine herd. Sadly, he gave the swine leprosy too. <laughs> <laughs> Not entirely sure how he did that. Somebody fell to a proper risk assessment on that. <laughs> yes. I saw this horrible thing on Twitter today, which is a creationist version of um, evolution, and it has a man... Uh, raping a dinosaur, which is just oh. absolutely amazing. Mm. Anyway, mm. well, although I think the dinosaur was enjoying it. But, <laughs> uh, but the that's victim shaming. That is. Uh, sorry, it is. It is. You called me on that one. Um, yeah. So, so serious historical podcast. You said. <laughs> I, didn't, I never said serious. Um, the um, where were we? Oh yeah, King Bladder. dinosaurs apparently. Well, let's go back to the swine. So King Bladder somehow gave leprosy to the swine, and he would collect acorns for them in the forest. And as he was walking along the River Avon, he found a spring, which was a lovely warm spring with bubbling water. Smelled a little bit weird. Looked a bit green. But the pigs went off and wallowed in it. And lo and behold, when they came out. They were cured of their leprosy. And so Bladdard himself went and covered himself in the mud of this um, uh, of this spring and was cured and went back to his father and became the next king. And in thanks to the spirits of the spring, he founded the city of Bath. And there are statues of Bladdard and one of the swine. Around Bath, actually. If you ever wondered what they were when you were in Bath, <laughs> and so it's a, it's a ridiculous story. <laughs> um, but you know who, how true is it? And then his his son was Leah, and the Leah story obviously is very. You know, it's, it's quite a legend, isn't it? It's got all of those elements of um, of legend. But, you know, how much of it is true? I think what's so interesting about these stories is their relationship to the Roman stories, which are obviously very well documented because of all the different strands of Roman religion that there are how they're sort of interwoven within the folklore and the, the sort of myths and legends of the people who are already in the places where the Romans came to settle. Mm. And actually, Miles Russell does point out the fact that the people of Britain um, were very, very keen on this Brutus story because it made them on the same level, they made them equal with Rome 
because Rome was also, you know, the mythical foundation of, well, one of the mythical stories of the foundation of Rome, not Romulus and Remus, but um, another one, is that it was founded by uh, by people escaping from Troy. <clears throat> so this, so the Britons were very keen on this story. And of course, the Iron Age people sent sent their, or well, some of their, the the tribes sent their sons over to Rome to live mm. in Rome. Mm. Um, as, as hostages? Yes. <laughs> so we could talk about the Trinovantes being, you know, traitors to the British, sending their sons to learn Roman ways. But eventually the Catavalloni were quite pleased with the Roman rule as well. <laughs> One wonders how many other works out there you could look at with a sort of revisionist eye. Now people are starting to understand a little bit more about this 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 period of history, which has been little understood, I think, for a very long time, and dismissed as uninteresting and boring and you know uncivilized. There's just such a wealth of material out there if we know where to look for it, if we look at it with the right eyes. And I think it's also lovely that we've got what are potentially. Um, stories from this part of Britain, South East, what is now England, um, where the, this this area had been devoid of any kind of literary tradition, uh, yeah, literary yeah. tradition at all until the Anglo-Saxons arrived. And how lovely it is to talk about this with the backdrop of the I don't know how how much of my friends picking up, but this just gently crackling fire, snoring dog, <laughs> <laughs> just this, this gentle murmur of conversation. It's it's a very timeless experience. And to talk about the kinds of things we're talking about is just lovely. Yeah. Really rare opportunity. Well thank you so much everybody. It's been lovely to to talk to you. Thank you. And I I, I might just keep recording a little bit to just record some <laughs> sounds, ambient sounds of the Iron Age house. Um, now we put the Chris packet down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some anach- creative anachronisms going on today, including podcast equipment, obviously. <laughs> so thank you so much, everyone. <laughs> I remember said, has anybody been to Cosmiston Medieval Village in South Wales? No, no I've heard Many that times. <laughs> They've recreated a medieval village from from some amazing archaeological remains and they've rebuilt all the buildings that were there in the time of settlement. And the, the most wonderful thing when I was there was hearing an American tourist ask whether they just sort of scraped away the earth <laughs> from the roofs down to expose these fantastic buildings. But no, very much like here at Tulliphonism, they've all been rebuilt. And I remember spending one night sitting in their, their, their sort of central building, which is a, it's a meeting place of sorts. It's the largest building there at the site. And there must have been 30 or 40 other reenactors there. And for all that the conversation was about modern things, it was about television and football and computers and our jobs and that many. Really. If you just let your ears just defocus slightly, somebody was playing a penny whistle in a corner, and you had, you know, children laughing and this sort of gentle rise and fall conversation <clears throat> and the sound of the fire in the hearth. And it, again, it was that amazingly timeless experience, just whilst that you're stepping outside of time somehow into a, an arena that was that was subtly different, that was timeless. And it's it's very much like it is this evening. Okay, we're, we're rustling crisp packets and we're talking about things that are modern, but actually if you just tune out just a tiny bit, this is the sort of experience that humans have been undergoing for, for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. Mm. It's part of a, a, an amazing continuity. And I absolutely love that. One of my favourite places is Carcassonne. Mm. I don't know if anyone's been there. Um, it's a medieval fortified city in southern France and it's just it's so tacky and it's so touristy. <laughs> but it, it means that it's always busy. And just the streets are bustling with people, and it's almost like if you unfocus your eyes, yeah, um, you and your ears, obviously. Although, of course, they're all speaking in loads of different languages as well, so which makes it feel like it's a very, very cosmopolitan yeah. city, and it, a tiny, tiny city, and you just see all the people bustling in. That. The conversation carried on well into the night. 
But this is where we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, it's just going to be me bringing out a few more ideas from this book. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. So, welcome back. Next morning after I recorded this podcast, after we'd slept over in the Iron Age house, we woke up early as the light was streaming in through the gaps in the door and rekindled the fire. When we opened the door, it was quite an atmospheric sound. And it, and the light just streamed in and lit up the whole house in a way that it hadn't done the night before and left us in the dark. And then, uh, in, in a very inauthentic way, but it was very necessary, I, uh, I made some coffee on the fire. Can you hear this? That's one of those espresso makers and uh, it was very necessary after quite a late night. We made some breakfast as well. If I can locate the uh, sound for this. Oh... That sound reminds me of a very welcome breakfast that next morning. And then we had to clear out the Iron Age house um, so that visitors could come and not realise that we'd been sleeping there all night. (laughs) It was lovely to talk to my colleagues about um, the stories that we... uh, that we use and potential stories that we could use more of. Um... But I want to think about how we do this and how we present them because these um, stories are the legends of the people that we are representing and we sometimes work totally in character and sometimes not. So it's, but we, we need to get across that these are not true stories about how um, how Britain, how the, the people behaved and, the, and what they did, but that they are almost that kind of legendary um, type of story and a very heroic story where um, you're you've got to take it with a bit of pinch a pinch of salt. So um, it'd, it'd be really interesting to work out how to do this, and that's a conversation that I'll continue to have with all of my my colleagues. But for anybody else who lives and works in southeast. Um, England, then it's actually really useful to read this book. Um, if you want, if you're looking, it's a very niche market, I know, but if you are looking specifically to represent the Iron Age people, late Iron Age people in Southeast England, then the stories are all in Geoffrey of Monmouth. There you go, just use them. Um, now, many of the stories in Geoffrey of Monmouth, I mean, do deal with um, Arthur a little bit and his um, father and uncle and Merlin and all that stuff. And there are some fantastic stories about how. Merlin brings the um, stones for Stonehenge from Ireland um, and sets them up. And they were originally part of a um, uh, a giant's ring of circles because, of course, the, the first inhabitants of Britons were clearly giants. Um, but there's, uh, all you know, the stories that take in Ireland and Wales and Cornwall. But what Miles Russell is suggesting is... Uh, Sadly, I don't I don't want to take these away from all of those places, but that actually the central um, stories that Geoffrey of Monmouth was using were using were 
primarily in Southeast England, and they own they only bring in Cornwall and Ireland and Wales because Geoffrey of Monmouth um, was misreading either by accident or on purpose to make the the stories more widely applicable. Um, so, for instance, um, the story of Brutus being the the mythical founder of Britain um, was actually used in an earlier. Uh, text by Nennius, who um, wrote the history of Britain. And um, it's clearly a very deep-seated myth about that the Britons would have had about about where their their country came from, where they their people came from, um, which is really interesting, given that, of course, actually the, the uh, people had just been there since the last Ice Age. Um, so there's the reality and then there's the what people in the past thought about their own past. So Nennius talks about how Brutus was um uh travelled from um Troy and uh and moved to eventually to Britain through Gaul um and through Italy. And it, well, he gives a couple of different um, stories about about Brutus, whether or not he was actually a um, a consul in Rome and then was chucked out, uh, or whether he and and quite you know quite um, descended from the people of uh, of Troy, but by quite a few generations, or whether he went straight there from um, from Troy. So. Uh, Nennius um, describes how um, how Brutus actually gets to um, gets to Britain and and uh, um, sets up a new dynasty of kings, a great dynasty of kings. Um, and Brutus, uh, sorry, Geoffrey of Monmouth takes this story, and he gives several different versions as well, um, but. Um, most of his, the first book of his Historia um, is about Brutus's journey. And uh, at one point he's in um, Greece and he uh, encounters a Diana's temple um, on an island called Leogitia. I don't know where that would be. Um, and he asks Diana, which, in which lands do you wish us to dwell? And Diana responds, to the west. Beyond the kingdoms of Gaul lies an island of the ocean surrounded by the sea, an island of the ocean where giants once lived, but now is deserted and waiting for your people. Sail to it, it will be your home forever. It will furnish your children with a new Troy. From your descendants will arise kings who will be masters of the whole world. But Geoffrey also puts something else in there. So, um... Let me find that bit where he, whilst uh, Brutus is in Greece, he actually comes across some other Trojans who had uh, been exiled from Troy and kept captive in Greece and um, uh, Brutus frees them. And they were led by a man named Corinius. So Geoffrey uh, says, as soon as they had realised that his stock was of such high antiquity, they took him into alliance with them straight away, together with the people over whom he ruled. Later, Cornwall was named after the, uh, called after the name of this leader. In every battle, he was of more help to Brutus than anyone else. And particularly when they come to Gaul, Corinius... Um, was very um, instrumental in uh, in winning a battle um, against uh, Gafarius the Pict, apparently, who ruled the area. So Corinius took fresh heart, calling his old men, old men over to the right of the battle, arranged them in fighting formation and charged headlong at the enemy. With his troops in close order, he broke through their ranks in front and went on killing the enemy until he had worked right through their force and compelled them all to flee. He lost his sword, but by good luck he had a battle axe, and anything he struck with this he cut in two from top to bottom. 
Brutus was greatly impressed by his boldness and courage. So were his comrades, and so, indeed, were the enemy. So Corinius ends up being um, a co-founder of Britain, and Cornwall is named after him, according to Geoffrey, um, which places Cornwall on a very high footing, um, almost as a separate kingdom to the rest of Britain. And obviously you can see the basis of that in quite a lot of myths about Cornwall. Um, But it probably, I'm sorry, Cornwall people, I'm really sorry, it probably is referring to someone who was seen as the founder of, of someone to the west of Troia Nova, which we know from the discussions earlier. (laughs) Excuse me. That was a sneeze. I have had a bit of a cold uh, recently. I'm sorry if you are listening to this and find that off-putting. So... Um, so there, so Cornwall is actually the place to the west of the Trinovantes tribe, the Troyanova that Geoffrey of Monmouth um, mistranslated. And of course, to the west of the Trinovantes is the Catuvaloni. So you can see that there are these links that have the the letters. Some of the letters are different. Um, but you, what do you think? Something to the west of Britain that begins with a C? It must, you must mean Cornwall. That's basically what Geoffrey of Monmouth was doing. So we um, in the southeast can kind of take back some of these stories um, that have been used to uh, as the mythical background to a lot of places in southern England, in southern Britain, um, because they look like they were stories used by the people in what is now Essex and Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire and Bedfordshire, the London area, and probably south of the Thames too, um, because the county people seem to be um, are paying tribute to those north of the river and therefore um, kind of under them, I suppose, in the, in the society structure. Uh, so... Um, it's they are they are their stories that they tell about their past, um, and they're very very keen on this Brutus story, as I mentioned before, because it they feel that it puts them on a level with the Romans. So it's also these these stories are hugely influenced by the fact that they've already had contact with the Romans. So probably the although elements of this story are older than the middle of the first century BC that they are, um, it seems to be that's when they're crystallised at, at that point so that these these new people, these Romans who are coming over and taking over most of Europe and eventually will take Britain as a vassal kingdom or a set of vassal kingdoms, um, are, we're not, we're not um, being taken over by them, actually. The, that's what the Britons say. We are in partnership with the Romans because we are descended from the same people. And that's how they uh, justify it to themselves, I guess. So that's quite interesting, if we can um, tell those stories. But what I would be um, interested in is how to make that clear that it is just a story and not um not the truth about what the where the britons came from when we talk to children and i often come out of character and and i will say that quite clearly that this is a myth a legend of the iron age people but i know that many of my colleagues would like to stay in character so how do you do that how do you stay in character and stay say this is a myth of my people Unless your character is naturally sceptical about everything and a bit of a cynic, and then you can say, you know, my people say this story, but I don't think that's true. I suppose that's one way of doing it. So, but does it really matter? Does it really matter to actually have these stories, tell the stories? So the children aren't going to remember all of the details anyway, for one thing. And for another thing, it does get... the fact that we're using stories of the local people um, is probably much more valuable than the fact that they are propaganda. Well, there you go. That's a, it's an idea anyway. 
Now, in the last five minutes, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what's coming up on the podcast. As I mentioned before, we are going to do a film special. Yay! Now, there have been quite a lot of of films set in prehistory, and some of them are better than others. Um, We're going to have to narrow it down so that we don't take in every single film. But what I want to think about, um, and I'm going to talk to um, two guests, Alice O'Mahony from York University and Penelope Foreman, who's studying for her PhD at Bournemouth University, um, and we're all we're all film buffs. We're all really interested in that stuff. And uh, I like to watch all of these prehistoric films just to laugh at them or to think. Actually, do you know what? That's that's a pretty good idea. As you know, same. I do the same thing with reading books set in prehistory too. Quite a lot of them are laughable, um, but there are also some really amazing ones that make you think differently about the research that you're doing that's amazing um so we're going to we are going to look at one million years bc we are i know what you're thinking but you know apart from the dinosaurs it's got some interesting ideas to discuss in that i think about whether people whether life was nasty brutish and short or the emergence of altruism and helping each other so that that's um and of course the Uh, leopard skin bikinis Uh, we can talk about clothing of that time as well so that should be good um but we can contrast this with clan of the cave bear the daryl hannah film uh, from the early 80s now i i don't like to um admit this so i won't say it very loud but i haven't actually seen it i know i'm gonna have to watch it before we record the next podcast so that i can um think about that and it's what will be really interesting is to see how different it is from the book um but i can't believe that i haven't seen it after all these you know it's been out for years um but there are a couple of other films there was that funny film a few years ago Ten Thousand bc that was um i think it started out well and it went really strange i'm gonna have to remind myself about that and uh then there's also um a film that was recommended to me by uh, one of my previous podcast guests jan friedman um and he lent it to me um this is called ow the last the last neanderthal i think or the last hunter um and that's really interesting it's a french film um but there's not a lot of language in it generally anyway so it doesn't really matter um so i think that's that's going to be really interesting to talk to my guests about now after that um i'm going to do another one on film well but but it's based on a book so i'm talking to um a regular guest on my podcast matthew pope about the book quest for fire which was originally written in french um translated into english and then made into a film as well starring ron perlman with very little makeup actually (laughs) as you know (laughs) with ron perlman um he he kind of has quite a few vestiges of that um that early hominin look so um uh, uh, we can contrast the book and the film which are actually quite different uh, and um, it's quite interesting to see what dis- what choices the filmmakers took um, to make their their hu- different human groups um, all different, and and to see what level of language and uh, cooperation and things like that that they had and technology. Um, and Matthew Pope from University College London is a great person to talk about that with. So that should be really really good. Now, if you have any suggestions for films or books or graphic novels or poems or any other anything that's surrounding the um, the topic of fiction set in prehistory, whether that may be written in prehistory or not, of course, prehistory itself is uh, supposedly devoid of writing. Um, but after what Miles Russell has said about. Uh, the stories that Geoffrey of Monmouth based his book on. Perhaps one day, some scrolls or something, the Rosetta Stone of Britain will be found that proves that these stories were based 
on stories that people told and possibly wrote down in prehistory. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.